Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. While fascination with the Viking Age seems to be at an all-time high, though of course it has never really gone out of fashion, there is something irresistibly compelling about this civilization dedicated to boldly exploring the horizons of the known world, forging an empire that stretched from North America to Kiev, and dominating the political and economic landscape from the fall of Rome to the First Crusade. Writers, artists, and musicians have found inspiration in the sagas of the Vikings, and modern culture, too, has mined the canon for inspirations for such blockbusters as Game of Thrones and the Marvel films. But few scholars have delved into the world of Viking women until now. My guest today is Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdatter, a distinguished academic currently based at the National Library of Norway in Oslo after teaching at Yale University. Her new book, Valkyrie, Women of the Viking World, is a deeply satisfying exploration of the lives of Viking women. The book is skillfully arranged around the skeleton life of the life cycle of a woman from birth through childhood, adolescence, marriage, and then finally old age. But Johanna has expertly fleshed this skeleton out with examples drawn from archaeology, contemporary accounts, and the rich literary vein of the Old Norse sagas. The result is a truly compelling read that helps us better understand the women behind the great men of the Viking Age, who emerge as powerful agents for change in their own right. I'm so delighted that the book brings Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdatter to the New Books Network today. Johanna, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. That was a great intro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a great book. And I'd like to to start with the book itself and the title. Um, Could you tell us what exactly a Valkyrie is and what we know about them? Because I think there is, in modern culture, a lot of sort of sexy Valkyrie images. There certainly are on Pinterest. Um, But what exactly is a Valkyrie? Valkyries, yeah. I mean, they are so fascinating. And it's true that they have this kind of sexy image, maybe, um, which isn't necessarily what the Vikings <laughs> themselves believed. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, at the at the heart of things, a Valkyrie is a woman who is supernatural, and she comes um, to battles, and she chooses the slain. That's the etymology of the word. Um, so she uh, decides who dies and who lives on the battlefield. And the the warriors who die, they get to go to Odin um, or Freya, probably. And um, and this this female creature is the one who kind of takes them there. Um, but uh, they aren't necessarily very sexy. They are kind of um, bloodthirsty, and they're really excited about you know picking who dies and so on. Um, and so it's it's. Um, maybe a little bit later that they kind of become like uh, sort of companions and, and romantic interests um, in, mm. in some Viking culture. But originally they just seem to be like, oh, you know, 
sort of very scary and alarming. And um, mm-hmm. yeah. Can I can I take a loop back to something you've just said, which is um, you say that the Valkyries choose whether to take the slain to Odin or Freya. Is there is there a difference between those two? Who are Odin and Freya? Oh, sorry. Yes. No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Odin is um, the god of war in Norse mythology, and he's supposed to be the sort of highest god, the most important one. Um, and then Freya is one of many other gods, and um, she is said to, to have half of the slain. Um, and then Odin gets the other half, and they are sort of... The, the reason why they are collecting these dead warriors is that um, there's going to be an event in the future, sort of in the timeline of Norse um, mythology. It's in the future for, for them, where um, it's called Ragnarok. You might have heard of it. It's sort of like the apocalypse in some ways because um, it's this sort of ultimate battle between evil forces or, or hostile forces and the gods. Um, and so they need this army of dead warriors in order to fight them. Um, and then most of them die in this battle, but a couple of them actually survive and then build a new world. Oh, goodness yeah. me. <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> I see. So, um, so the Valkyries are supernatural beings. They're not real women, but you've chosen to to focus on on the lives of, of real women. And I love the structure of the book. You take a woman from birth to to death. Um, how did you How did you go about choosing that particular structure? Well, thank you. Um, I don't want to take all credit for it because it was actually my friend and um, former supervisor. Uh, Caroline Larrington, who suggested mm. it when I, I I was just standing in her kitchen saying, oh, I think I'm going to write this book. And she said, yeah, you should structure it along the life cycle. And I just went, yeah. Um, so it was. Well, it seems it seems a very organic structure and, and um, it, it makes for a very compelling read because you're kind of following a, a woman, many mm. women. Through, yeah. through their lives. It just worked so well. And um, I just committed to it immediately and everything kind of just fell into place after that. And um, it sort of makes a lot of sense because when we say Viking women, you know, that is quite a big term. And um, I kind of wanted to try to nuance it um, quite a lot. And so, you know, your, your life wasn't the same when you were a widow as when you were a teenage girl. And um or, or a married woman mm-hmm. or an old woman. And so kind of trying to bring that out, um, so, you know, with that structure that really enabled me to go into those uh, nuances. And what was your process? I mean, their, their uh, Viking studies is, is frustrating but exciting because this, there aren't as many sources as there are for, say, Renaissance mm-hmm. uh, Europe. What, what can a scholar delve into to, to look for data? Yeah, the data is, um, I mean, if you're a Viking scholar, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades in some <laughs> because you, you kind of, you have to learn how to deal with um, sources that are so disparate and so, you know, uh, graves and texts that are maybe written, you know, contemporary, but from, you know, someone who's biased against Vikings or mm. texts that are written several hundred years after the events that they describe. Um, and then there are <clears throat> rune stones. So they, um, the Vikings themselves 
<coughs> Sorry. No worries. Um, so the Vikings themselves, they um, put up these stones kind of usually at like crossroads or somewhere in, in the outdoors, but where people would be passing by. And they had, um, they, they had someone carve inscriptions in rooms on these stones. And so, um, you know, you're sort of dealing with so many different sources and, and you have to be able to sort of synthesize them um, in a way that makes sense and is useful. And I, and I would say that the strongest threads in the book are, are the, the sagas, because you, you delve into those really compelling stories to give examples of women at different stages and different, different sort of crises in their lives. Um, and of course the, the, the sagas is a huge canon of, of really fascinating literature and, and you're obviously very um, familiar with, with each and every story. Uh, because we're, our time is limited, um, I wondered if, if you might tell us the story of one woman um, who appears throughout your book, and that's, that's Gudrun, mm-hmm. um, who's a super complicated character, and her story is not a fairy tale at all. Um, but I think that she goes through many of the challenges that you highlight in the book. So I wondered if you might just share with the listeners mm-hmm. an outline of Gudrun's story. Yes. So Gudrun is a legendary heroine and um, she appears in several different texts and um, the kind of saga of the Velsungs is maybe the most accessible one if you are looking to read about her. Um, and then she also appears in some poems called Eric Poems. And um, she is, belongs to this dynasty of, um, sorry, she belongs to a dynasty of, of these legendary figures. And um, she has several brothers who are all great heroes. And, um, and then one day this um, fabulous man turns up at the court um, and he is Sigurd, the dragon slayer, and he's the same character as Siegfried in the um, in the Nibelunge leads uh, lead and the operas by Wagner. If if you're you know if you if you're an opera fan, I am. Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> not necessarily so, Wagner, but no. <laughs> but a lot of people really like the Ring Cycle, and you mm-hmm. know, they're familiar with these characters um, from there. And so she's called Kriemhild in the the German version. But at, uh, at any rate, she um, kind of just grows up like a princess and um, she's very sort of um, vulnerable and um, kind of innocent in the beginning. And then everyone starts killing each other, basically. <laughs> um, so her, um, Sigurd, when he, he kills the dragon, he gets the dragon's um, treasure. And then her brothers and her mother are extremely jealous of this treasure and they really want it. So they kind of start um, figuring out a plan how to get it. And um, they eventually have Sigurd killed. And um, and then there's this kind of other woman who's mixed up into this. So there's kind of love and jealousy and betrayal and, you know, um, you know, there's a conflict between the brothers and the sister and so on. Mm-hmm. And so she's kind of stuck between loyalties. And um, it's it's a story that seems to have been extremely popular among the Norse. And um, they, you know, the, the sort of, if there was ever any kind of event that um, 
this is modeled on, uh, that would have been like so far in the past that, that like whatever happened had changed so much by the time they started writing it down. But they, they are clearly extremely compelled by all of these kind of betrayals and like the situation that Gudrun finds her, herself in. And then she gets sort of bullied into a second marriage to a husband who then kills her brother. <laughs> and she, you know, she goes from this extremely innocent young woman to someone who actually kills her own children um, in order to avenge herself on her husband who had killed her brothers. Um, and so she, yes, she kills her own children and then cooks them and feeds them to him. And, um, and it's just all so kind of abjectly horrible. <laughs> and I, I really doubt that this was like, you know, anything that was real for most people, but um, they're, they're sort of, they're interested in talking about like what happens if you're so kind of hell bent on revenge and you can't sort of let things go. And um, yeah. And there's something about the sort of the mother, like, you know, almost sort of shirking that um, kind of maternal. Doing the unthinkable. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and you know, how far is one willing to go in order to exact revenge? And, and so the, she is this kind of figure. Um, I mean, yeah, like people are kind of engaging with all kinds of different themes and, and anxieties through telling her story. Um, and she's just completely fascinating. And, and from Gudrun's story and some of the other sagas I, and your book, um, I get the sense that um, Viking women were far less sort of shut up or cloistered away than their European counterparts were during the same period. Is this like an age of opportunity as far as Viking women are concerned? Or what, what is their ability to get out of, of the house or out of the kitchen? Mm. Yeah. Depending on? I mean, I think um, in many ways they, I mean, because the men are going away, and um, they're away for, you know, very long stretches of time and they sometimes don't even come back. And um, and the, it's sort of a boom time in the economy. And so compared to like before and after, there's just, you know, uh, you know uh, there's a lot of opportunities to kind of increase your family's income. Mm. And there's, you know, the goods are flowing around um and so you can, if you have anything to sell, you can kind of get into the markets and get a much better price. And there's just much, much more um, demand, for example, for textiles. So when the Vikings are going off on their raiding and trading and everything, they needed um, sales. Mm. And so if you were, you know, a sort of enterprising, resourceful woman, you could probably you know, try to maybe get get um, set up as a business and, and um, you know, spin and weave and make sales. Um, or if you had access to some sort of raw material that, um, that was desirable, you know, you could try to start harvesting that and selling it. So there's just, you know, the economy is much sort of more active than maybe in mm -hmm. the, the, the previous era. And so even if you're like living at home and you never really leave your sort of home region, it's still like a time when everything is just flowing around and there's people are moving around more and so on. And so, um, 
you know, that's one thing. But then also the, the women were sort of going with the men sometimes on expeditions and then to colonize oh, yeah. and settle. <laughs> so, and they would go, and you say that they would go for a long time. And there's this um, concept of o- o- overwintering, I think, um, yeah. where you, you go to someplace where presumably the weather is better. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to demean the Norwegian weather. But <laughs> well, is, yeah. that, is that the case? Um, I mean, I they they actually travel quite like surprisingly much. I think that uh-huh. that's one of the things that might actually surprise you when you start reading sagas. Is that? Um, but yeah, but they are definitely sort of going off on the Viking trips, often just for the summer. Um, mm-hmm. And then coming back and staying at home for the winter. But um, yeah, it's sort of, you know, you'd be surprised at like where people actually lived and went, like even in the middle of the winter. Um, uh-huh. So they just, they seem to have um, had no concept of bad weather, just bad clothes, maybe. Right, just bad clothes. <laughs> um, and, and because women are more out in the world, um, they do put themselves in harm's way more. And one horrific example is is um, sort of myth as well as story is the story of Rinda, mm. who was raped by the god Odin. And I, I saw that in your book as sort of a, um, a reflection of the Viking attitude towards rape, um, which mm-hmm. kind of crops up often, it seems to me. Um, how did the Vikings treat this idea of, of sort of sexual assault? Yeah, I mean, there's – it's uh... – there's no one answer because I think people probably disagreed about, about um, you know, the level of male entitlement to women's mm-hmm. bodies. And I mean, just the fact that, you know, women are sort of like female characters are expressing kind of fear of getting raped and so on means that there must have been some kind of um, pushback against the idea that like women were just sort of there to be... <laughs> be taken by men um and it's different as well like i mean because the vikings were patriarchal um and they're i mean the the sort of there's one myth about them that they sort of practiced free love or something like that and that's just a complete um misunderstanding i think Mm. and um and you know it was very dishonorable for you you know if you were a father or husband you know if um other men could sort of get um get close to your your women <laughs> and um you know whether the woman was consenting or not i mean it it was it, yeah it was very dishonorable and so i mean it, there's this myth about um rinter and her rape by odin is kind of referred to in several different sources um in in old norse and there's Often it's kind of just like, oh, yeah, and she gave birth to this um, amazing hero who uh, had a very important job at Ragnarok. Um, Mm. And it's sort of like almost like she's supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be happy for her or something like that. (laughs) Um, That this, this, you know, sexual encounter um, resulted in that. But um but then there's a really sort of long and full version of the, the myth that is related in um, a source in Latin, actually, uh, that was written by Saxo Grammaticus, who was this monk um, sitting in Denmark. And he he wrote the myth and he kind of 
it's really interesting how he's he's very ambivalent um, because the the sort of generally the, the the sources often sort of encourage the reader to align themselves with you know the sort of dominant attitude and which is often male um, mm-hmm. and Sexo is kind of telling the story about her um, getting raped and he's he's just like like not really able to presented as completely like normal and um, you know, that she should be grateful or something that, that she gets to give birth to this great hero. Um, hmm. so, yeah. This, but he's a Christ, he's a Christian monk. Exactly. Um, yeah. And like some of his, uh, his other um, sort of chroniclers like um, Snorri Sturluson, mm-hmm. um, Adam of Bremen, they, they are writing, at least two, three centuries. Is that right? Three centuries after, sort of the the height of the Viking Age. Um, yeah, like two hundred and something years after. Yeah, Snorri. Right. Saxon. What What about the 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 sort of Norse mythology itself? I mean, what yeah. does that have to tell us about sexual infidelity? And it seems to me, in a way, that there was kind of a double standard. Yeah, I mean, I think it. To, to an extent, that's absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, the sort of mistresses get referred to as just kind of normal, If at least if you are a king or, you know, somebody important and somebody with high social status. Um, and there's, like in Heimskringla, which is the a, a long sort of saga about Norwegian kings, um, the kings often kind of are extremely pr- promiscuous and they travel around usually and they sort of just um, go go and stay with someone like the local chieftain or something and then they just sort of shack up with you know their daughter for a while uh-huh. <laughs> and usually the chieftain is like thrilled because um, because if if um, he like he, he'll benefit usually from this and so the the woman's feelings in the matter are usually not um, considered at all in, in those sorts of stories. Um, and, you know, if she ends up having a son, then that son could have a claim on the throne. So it's sort of like very transactional, really. Um, and so, you know, in, in those cases, it seems that there's not a lot of worry about like whether or not they were married or, you know, mm. it's not really like a moral question. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but when, you know, you get to Iceland and it's sort of, just like farmers, um, you know, if there's a like a local farmer and there's a someone is kind of trying to seduce his daughter and he's not really able to resist that, that can really be a terrible loss of honor as well. But mm. um, but then you also have like women cheating on their husbands and um, sort of just openly defying them, mm-hmm. um, and that. You know, again, like it's it doesn't seem to be necessarily because, um, you know, they lack complete, you know, sorry. It doesn't doesn't necessarily seem to be that they are, you know, immoral or something. And that's not really what the the sources are sort of worried about. It's much more that the the couple doesn't seem to be suited. Mm. What which which begs the question, you spend a lot of time on. 
in your book about um, how do women get married and um, mm. what is what is sort of what is a Viking what is the recipe for a happy Viking marriage? And I wonder if you could expand on that. Um, what were the qualities that uh, a Viking man would look for in a potential wife? Yeah, that's um, <laughs> probably varied from one individual to another in some ways. Um, the when a marriage. Um, is contracted, it's usually arranged. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, like in very many patriarchal conservative societies, um, the woman or the, the t- usually a teenage girl, she's just kind of told like, oh, you're going to marry so-and-so. And then she's not told until after it's been arranged. And a, a man would have probably been uh, looking mi- mostly for um, a woman who had you know, a, a family that was sort of, um, you know, useful to have on your side. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, sometimes men uh, who have become rich, you know, for example, through trade or something, they actually kind of m- want to marry up socially uh, to somebody who's, who's got more social status. And that usually doesn't go very well. Um mm. And if the woman kind of thinks that she's been married beneath her, she um, isn't very happy and she openly just flaunts um, sort of her unhappiness sometimes at the sagas. Mm-hmm. And, and she'll like, there's sort of stories about them just spending all the money and not consulting the husband and kind of just being really, you know, unpleasant sometimes. And yeah, like having affairs and so on. Um, so, I mean, I would say the recipe for a good marriage is usually that um, that the couple is well-suited to each other, they're social equals, and um, have the sort of same values and, and uh-huh. um, attitudes, just like in probably most successful marriages. Um, and then, Absolutely. you know, yeah. <laughs> and then, then and- sorry. <laughs> no, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, that the woman... Um, you know, for the the family, for their economy and and sort of their life to be prosperous, she she would have needed to be, you know, assertive and hardworking and resourceful um, and sort of no nonsense. And what I really like about the sagas is that they often um, show women sort of being their husbands' friends and advisors, and they just talk everything through and the woman sometimes tells the husband like you know this is a bad plan I don't think you should do this and then he kind of backs off and everything goes well and <laughs> so the, the, they they have a they get a lot of respect and and throughout your book there there seems to be a sense that women are the repository of sort of secret knowledge often um in the sagas that they um they know ma- not magic but sort of the otherworldly aspects of things. Yeah, I'm, there's there's a lot of sort of blurring with the mythology sometimes, and the saga authors are kind of maybe a little mystified and almost scared of, of women, and they sort of feel that they have access to knowledge that men don't necessarily have, and um, mm-hmm. and that's sort of... There, there, there are all kinds of women who are called... Um, you know, they know many things. So if, if a saga introduces a woman with something like that, then you know that she's 
you know, she's maybe able to do magic, but you're not quite sure. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so there, there's a lot of sort of, they, they sort of allude to things without necessarily um, being very explicit. Um, but sometimes that kind of character blurs into a sort of more of a prophetess type mm-hmm. um, who's able to see the future and kind of make good prophecies or bad prophecies and bring sort of, you know, you can use that as a saga author to create, you know, an atmosphere of doom or, mm. <laughs> yeah. But what about real life um, women, Viking women who did kind of, you have a wonderful phrase in the book. You say um, something like the breaking the glass ceiling for the Viking age was mm. difficult. It required a lot of guts, but um, there was an opportunity for women who were talented yeah. um, to sort of make their way. How did, how did women sort of, if the men were always away, did they rise to positions of political prominence ever? I think some of them probably did. Um, there's um, a few characters in this, the sagas, like in Heimskringla, um, women who kind of seem to co-rule and um, with either husbands or sons. And um, they, you know, they are successful for a period, but then, you know, sometimes alliances break or um, people lose battles or something. And so they aren't necessarily um, sort of, you know, successful in the long run, but they might rule for a period. And um, the most prominent of these is Gunnhild, the um, so-called mother of kings. And um, Mm -hmm. she's married to someone who has a fabulous nickname, Eric Bloodaxe. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And and they, they sort of reign in Norway for a bit and then, um, they get expelled from Norway um, and then they go around, you know, they, I mean, p- these people were so mobile and so they go to Orkney, I think, and then end up in York. And that's when the Vikings were really sort of coming into their own in, in England and, and started to dominate, you know, really big parts of England for, you know, a couple of hundred years or so. Um, and, uh, she is somebody who the the saga authors are just completely fascinated with, and um, and there are all kinds of scenes where she she's maybe having, you know, an argument in front of the entire court with her husband, or um, after his death, she goes back to Norway with um, her sons, and then she's taking all kinds of lovers, and um, it's she's sort of. A, a, I can't remember if I called her the Viking cougar or something like that, but, <laughs> but she's, you know, she's extremely beautiful and alluring and she's, um, you know, definitely having lots of sex with men, you know, half her age. And, um, uh-huh. and there's, I mean, it's really interesting that there's not a, a huge amount of stigma always in like some of these stories about her, but, um, but yeah, like these, these saga authors are, completely fascinated with with uh, a woman who knows what she wants <laughs> well and that brings us very skillfully around to um a character that many of our listeners may have um been maybe familiar with um through the tv series vikings and i i bring this up only because you are delightfully 
happy to reference all of this modern culture stuff in your book that you <laughs> often refer to one of my favorite characters from Game of Thrones, Yara Greyjoy, who's oh, completely, <laughs> completely tough cookie. Um, but I'm referring, of course, to the marvelous Lagatha from mm. Vikings. Um, and because she, she is very much a woman who, from the beginning, is her own person, but she is presented as like a shield maiden. And I, I wonder if you could talk to us about the idea of a shield maiden. It's not the same as a Valkyrie. Um, but what is a shield maiden and to what extent are they fact or fiction? Yes. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> oh, we have enough time. <laughs> yeah. We'll make time. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really fascinating subject and there's a lot to talk about. And there's this kind of continuum in the Norse sources themselves um, from maybe the Valkyries who are actually not fighting per se, but they're there on the battlefield or, or next to it or something. And they're, you know, very much just like associated with battle. But then um, in some of these Icelandic sagas, we find shield maidens and um, they actually fight and, um, and they, sort of seem to have all of the gear and everything that you need um, for that and the ships and, and and so on. And then there's this sort of continuum to, like there's a couple of, of women women who, you know, at one point or another, there's they are in some kind of peril and they just take a weapon um, and, and use it. But but um, the, the shield maiden... It's a really interesting figure because they sort of they mostly operate in this legendary mythical world um, where they sort of sail around and everything is very exciting and glamorous, but it's not very realistic. It's a little bit like Game of Thrones because they um, and you know it's the sort of sagas where there are dragons and um, dwarves and all kinds of sort of mythical happenings and you might get Odin popping up and so it's it's like it's kind of hard to use them as sources for anything that would have happened historically mm-hmm. um, but they're great stories and um, and especially my favorite is Hervor Saga and there's this um, woman called Hervor who is an only child and she says to her mother you know when she's sort of a teenager that she wants the mother to um, out, you know, give her the same kind of treatment that she would give to a son, and so the mother says okay and gives her a ship and weapons and the you know sort of band of Viking followers, and then she just goes off and she's a Viking for a while, and she has a male name, and um, the saga always refers to this this person as a he. Um, and so the saga uses the male pronouns when she's a Viking. And so it's sort of, you wonder whether like there just wasn't such a thing as like a female warrior. Um, so they have to kind of um, make her into a male somehow. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you also wonder whether this is some kind of way of, of talking about gender dysphoria. And, you know, which is something that undoubtedly has always existed in every human society. Um, but, but yeah, as I say, like these sources are not very good to use as like historical, um, <laughs> if you want to 
sort of talk about like did you know Viking uh, shield maidens exist in reality? But um, there are like um, Anglo-Saxon sources, for example, where um, they are actually written by you know the, the people who experienced the Vikings coming and invading their country, and it's um, the same with um, there's a, a monk in Paris who. Uh, wrote an account of the siege of Paris in the ninth century. And they kind of say that the Vikings were bringing women with them. And, um, but they to kind of make it quite clear that the women were not fighting. And um, there's, I really like the, the Parisian monk who kind of mentions at one point that the women are sort of egging on the men and berating them and like saying, you're not, you know, fighting well enough. And, <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> this is this is probably why they they bring them yeah so that they will you know exactly. <laughs> spurn them on because you make the point in the book quite often that goading that women are very very useful for sort of goading a hero into action yeah I mean it's like there's just nothing more humiliating than a woman goading you <laughs> I think, for, for a Viking and, and um so yeah I mean there's this sort of that's the other side of the coin when you talk about like women as advisors and sort of friends and, and so on mm-hmm. where they, they also need to kind of push and give the men a little bit of a push. Right. And what happened when a, when a woman, uh, a Viking woman wants to divorce a Viking man, which, which from your book, I understand was something that did happen if rarely. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably didn't happen a lot. And, um, I mean, you would have needed some witnesses and you needed to go through some legal proceedings. Um, I think the main question was, you know, did you have some other option? Did you have a way out? And so I kind of say that, like, even if the laws that we have that are, you know, probably somewhat representative of, of um the laws of the Vikings, even though they're written down a little later. Um, and they, they sort of talk about um, the need for witnesses and you need to kind of have a basis. Um, so if, if the marriage hasn't been kind of consummated, if, if your spouse is neglecting you and so on, um, you, you kind of have to be able to prove it. But I also made the point that um, some of the sagas sort of show that it's not that simple and so even if you're in a marriage where some of these conditions um, are occurring um, if no one is willing to support you um, in this then you don't really have a way out so it's not really a de facto you know option Mm -hmm. and I I took this example of a woman who um, is married to this man who wants to make an alliance with her brother and he has a lot of money, and so he he essentially like buys her, and she thinks that she's been married beneath her, and she's really unhappy in this marriage. But um, you know, the brother doesn't want them to divorce, and um, then she starts cheating, <laughs> and mm. um, so she cheats on 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 the husband with this um, former flame, and but the 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 man she cheats with never offers her marriage. And so she's kind of just still stuck. And then he kind of just disappears again. And she's still still in the marriage. Um, and so, like, because she doesn't have a way out, she doesn't 
have a way to support herself or like a place to go or anything. Um, so like for her, and, like divorce is like not really an option realistically. And this seems to crop up again and again. I think it's a reality of, of the Viking life that mm. leaving uh, is always an option. Like, like just, just getting in a ship and sailing away to Iceland, to Greenland, to Kiev is, is just mm. always, you know, and it's always plan B, if not plan A. Yeah. I mean, for example, in um, Eric's saga and a couple of other sagas, we learn about Eid or Un. She's called and she has like a different, slightly different name in different sources. And she um, lives in Caithness for a while, which is in northern Scotland. And um, her family is kind of very much involved in all these um, power struggles that are happening in that region and, um, and they lose. And so she kind of realizes that she needs to get the hell out of there. And, um, and there's one saga that says that she had like a ship built um, and she got away with so much chattels and such a big following that no one else has ever managed to do this. And that, just shows how, you know, impressive and amazing this woman was. Um, but that's, like, definitely not something that just anybody could do. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sort of singled out as, as a big um, achievement, really. And, you know, in order to have access to a ship and a sail and everything, um, you kind of, you needed to have pretty high social status and, and um, you know, money and so on. It's interesting that you say a ship and a sail because mm. the sail was almost more valuable than the ship, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of difficult to put an exact figure on it, but um, I was so blown away when I started reading about sails. And it was kind of like, it surprised me that it was not as well known as like how, I mean, I guess when you go to, for example, the Viking Ship Museum in Oslo, you see this beautiful ship. And everything is so, you know, ornate and it's beautifully carved and you you just kind of have this instant connection with the past and, um, you know, you can sort of appreciate the skill and the craftsmanship and, and you know, you just immediately see, like, what, this must have taken so much work, you know, all the labor, all the skill and, like, all of the wood and just having to process the wood and then carve it and, and you know, you can see you know this would have taken many people you know a lot of time to make but um when you sort of think about sails you just think oh well it's just like a piece of cloth right like they 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 hoisted the sail and they were away yeah exactly (laughs) and and, you know I had absolutely never thought about sails I will admit um and you know most people probably don't think that, that it's a very sexy subject. I mean, you know, compared to the beautiful objects that you can see um, in museums. Um, but the sales took, what, like a, a whole season to make? And the way, it was the women yeah. who made them. Yeah, so when I uh, started reading about this, I just it just dawned on me that, um, so it, for one woman to make a sale, that would have taken four to five years. And golly, yes, I know. <laughs> and so you needed like several hundred sheep um, in order to have enough wool for the sale. And then you needed to kind of be able to process the wool and comb it and then spin it. And, you know, 
<laughs> like spinning is really hard and it takes a lot mm-hmm. of skill and it it's really hard on the fingers if you if you do it for a while it's fine but like to do it you know maybe eight hours a day um every day of the week or almost every day that would have just been so hard on the body mm-hmm. and then um just setting up like a loom it's so much delicate work and um I saw a video of it on YouTube and it's just like absolutely painstaking and it takes forever and then you like you finally get to the point where you can start weaving and you know and then you're just weaving and weaving and it takes forever and so by the time you have enough fabric for a sale and you know it like it's not kind of difficult to see that it would have taken maybe yeah like a whole winter you know if you had Mm. 10 people and you're just paying 10 people to work you know full-time on your sale and so yeah it's sort of if you do the math you can see that the the ship was um, just as expensive as the sale or the other way around and this is why the sales are often striped, isn't it? Because the 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 loom is only so wide. Yeah, it's maybe yeah. like a yard wide or so. Yeah, yeah. I had a, a Norwegian friend in uh, when we lived in Moscow, and she had a an old fashioned loom, and she it was it was amazing. It's incredibly intricate, and it's actually physically very challenging yeah. to work a loom, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ugh. yeah. You're sort of um, having to bend up and down, and um, right. Yeah. Well, she made it look very beautiful. It was like a dance, but but I can see that you know doing it for hours on end would have been really not as romantic. Yeah. But so as the Viking Age sort of comes to an end, mm-hmm. um, and Christianity comes in, I mean, this is a, a subject that I think is 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 for you know whole books. But Christianity comes to the Vikings in in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost like lots of threads coming together again with the weaving. Mm-hmm. Um, can you sort of unpack for us what role women had to play in the eventual conversion of Christianity? Or is, is that way yeah. too broad a question? I don't know. No, I mean, you know, I, I can try a little bit to talk about, you know, what kind of sources we have. And, and one source that um, we have from, from the actual Viking Age is uh, the runestones. And Again, as I say, the the runestones were sort of used usually raised in memory of someone, uh, but and so the inscription will say this is raised in the memory of my father or brother or daughter, um, and I paid for this and my name is X, <laughs> and um, and then sometimes there were these kind of um, prayers or there was something about um, the Virgin Mary and it, um, the, the runestones that were mostly associated with Mary were usually raised by women. And so the um, scholars who study these runestones, they sort of argue that um, women were quite like eager to sort of switch from paganism to Mary and Jesus and, um, and these, the, the, the Christian religion and the sort of Icelandic sagas, which are obviously much later and they can't be interpreted quite as sort of reliably um, in terms of like who actually, you know, it, it's sort of difficult to generalize that women were more eager to accept Christianity. But that that is sort of my overall impression, even though there's like one Viking poet um, who says that he 
uh, went to this one area in Sweden and all the women were extremely um, reluctant um, to, to convert. So I think it was like kind of a, might have been a bit of a culture war. And um, mm. and it probably, you know, varied from from region and, and just communities and people. And some communities are just always going to be more conservative or more interested in new things. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, in general, I mean, people, the, the Kings wanted people to convert. So they were extremely, you know, eager for that. And like sometimes quite so it was, violently. So it was top down rather than grassroots up. Um, for the most part. I mean, I think, you know, most people were just kind of getting along with their lives and, um, and weren't like necessarily thinking about converting uh, or religion that much. I mean, it's sort of difficult to tell, like, how, just how fervently religious people were, really, um, mm. and that would have just varied between individuals. Um, but yeah, the the kings were very much sort of driving conversion. Interesting. And they sort of, I mean, they wanted to to quote, uh, modernize their countries because they, um, they they were sort of modeling themselves on kings further south. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. they, they and, and I mean, in like England and France and so on, nobody wanted to do business with pagans. Um, right. So, yeah, it was sort of like, you know, you, you, you just had to be Christian to be able to do business further south. And, well, the Vikings were nothing if not adaptable. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah pretty pragmatic. <laughs> can I ask you? Can I ask you this? Um, uh, in Scandinavia, do young women sort of look to the Vikings for as sort of role models or inspiration, or um, or do they? Is it looked upon like in America we look at the pioneer women as sort mm. of examples of hardy bravery? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think um, to some extent. The, yeah, there, there's a sort of, you know, you might call someone a Valkyrie <laughs> when you're, you're, you know, praising someone, a young woman maybe for being assertive. Uh, uh-huh. And um, I mean, I think I'm not really sure to, I don't think that, but um, Scandinavians really think very much about their Viking roots uh, or Norse roots sort of. On an everyday basis, but um, hmm. but reenactment is apparently something that's like really kind of growing as a, mm-hmm. as a hobby or a lifestyle, and um, and I think with reenactors, there's like different aspects um, of the Viking Age appeal to different people, and so there are women who are really into you know the the warrior side of things, and they mm. participate in you know, re- recreating battles and, and, um, and like Viking fighting is a sport in, in Denmark and other countries. Um, but then, you know, there are other women who like to do, you know, the textile work and, um, mm-hmm. and sort of, I think maybe, you know, just getting away from modern technology and having a, a different lifestyle, you know, is, and, you know, go and do that in a, Viking camp for two weeks is something that nice. Yeah. So I think just different people can kind of take different things away from this. And I've, I've I've heard of like women who go to these Viking festivals and they, 
you know, they're a little bit like um, sort of gyp- gypsy, what do they call like sort of fortune tellers, except oh, that they, fun. yes, but they, they're basing themselves on the prophetesses and, and oh. the magical women from the sirens. So, yeah. Interesting. Uh, and just finally, um, I, I like to ask every author this, um, mm. what surprised you most as, as you worked on the research for this book and, and the writing of it? Um, I think the sales was one thing. And then mm-hmm. I, I just, I was really surprised by the variation in burials, for example, and just how interesting um, <laughs> burials can be and the kind of extremely wide range of um, goods that people were putting in their loved ones' graves. And I think the most um, astonishing burial uh, of all time is the Oseberg ship, um, which is the resting place or was the resting place of two women. And um, one of them was quite old. Um, she was at least over 70, which like for that time, was really, really old um, because people just had much shorter lives. And the other one was a little bit younger. And they were buried with, you know, just an amazing amount of really lovely stuff. <laughs> like, and, like what? Yeah. So they, um, they had like a, I think they were, they had a tent and a sleigh and a wagon and they had a complete set of, you know, everything you needed to cook. And um, so that involved, you know, like um, cooking implements and, and pots and a roasting spit and all kinds of things. And, yeah, and they had all kinds of carved, um, beautiful uh, objects and, and um, yeah, gosh, I can't remember everything. Well. That sounds amazing. Yeah, everything was and where, beautiful. And where was that? So this was found a little bit south of Oslo and the burial was from the sort of fairly early in the ninth century. And there was this tapestry in the burial as well. That's just, you know, extremely fascinating because, um, I mean, it was obviously damaged from having been in the earth from, uh, you know, the ninth century, but it, we can still like discern that there were, there were figures on it and they seemed to be in some kind of like parade or per- procession. And they are sometimes there ho- or some of them are holding spears mm. and there are all these trees and, and um, it's just um, extremely like mysterious what's being represented. And um, there's a lot of sort of bird like creatures and um, yeah, it's just really fascinating. And because there's no labels, <laughs> you know, mm. like with, with so much of the visual imagery and the, the sort of iconography from the Viking age, we don't really know what is being represented and whether it's a myth that we also find um, recorded, you know, in Snorri's um, Edda or whether it's a myth mm-hmm. that's been lost or, you know, what's what's happening. And so I'm really, really fascinated by all that. So the, the quest will continue. Yes, it will. <laughs> For the answer yeah. about Viking, and 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 as your quest continues, Johanna, what is what is next for you? What's your next project? Yeah, well, I um, think that I am going to write another book about Viking women. Excellent, and it's going to be a little bit different because um, I'm going to focus on just one woman. Ah, yes, 
Um, oh, fantastic. Um, well, can we yeah. invite you back to discuss yeah, it when, when it's published? Good. <laughs> I'm afraid that that is kind of all we have time for today, but this has been a really exciting discussion about um, Viking women and their age and, and their hopes and dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, before I let you go, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Oh, are you, you are on Twitter, I know. I am um, on Twitter. <laughs> Saga Knitter on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. You have the best Twitter handle of any of my authors. <laughs> At Saga Knitter. Yeah, it was just sort of um, a joke, and then it kind of just stuck, I guess. But um, That's perfect. I also have vikingwomen.org. <laughs> uh-huh. And, um, yeah, there, so there's a lot of stuff on there about me and my projects. And then if you want to buy the book, you can go to bloomsbury.com and just put in Valkyrie, and you'll find it. Great. And it is available wherever great books are sold, I think. Indeed. (laughs) Okay. Well, I I wish you the best of luck with it. It's a fascinating book and I recommend it highly to our listeners. Johanna, thank you so much for this wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for having me and for all your great questions. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. I will be back soon with another interview about a new book and with its author. Thank you so much for listening.